Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in African American Studies from the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm talking to Thomas Aiello about his new book, The Life and Times of Louis Lomax, The Art of Deliberate Disunity, which is out now from Duke University Press. Thomas is a professor of history and Africana studies at Valdosta State University. He's the author of more than 20 books and dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles. He holds PhDs in history and anthrozoology, and he lives in Valdosta, Georgia. And you can find out more about his work by visiting his personal website at Thomas Aiello Books. That's A-I-E-L-L-O dot com. Hi, Thomas. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, Let's just get straight into it. Who was Louis Lomax? Louis Lomax was a central figure to the civil rights movement, though he is often kind of placed in the background of that movement. His place in the background is largely because he was a polymath who did so many things. He was uh, the guy who introduced Malcolm X to the nation and helped with the early foundings of the second half of the Nation of Islam. He is uh, one of the leaders of the Olympic boycott and the Christmas boycott and all kinds of important elements of the civil rights movement. And yet in his role as a journalist and promoter, he often, because he's involved in so many things, he often gets kind of lost in the shuffle of a lot of our discussion of the leadership and ideologues of the civil rights movement. Okay. And another thing to, to flag up straight away is the subtitle of this book, The Art of Deliberate Disunity. Can you just give a brief idea of what you understand that term to mean? Right. Uh, he uses that term a couple of different times over the course of his career, and he uses it in a couple of different ways. He very much believes in disrupting status quos, and that in part it means disrupting the, the white supremacist status quo of the nation, to be sure, but also the status quo of the civil rights movement. He directed just as much of his criticism towards groups like the NAACP as he did with uh, white government officials. So he argued that the best way to kind of create new generative change was this kind of disruption challenged individuals in power. He wanted to practice this art of disrupting status quos wherever he could find them, which made him a lightning rod both within and without uh, of the movement. So is is Lomax a figure who has been on your radar for a while, or what exactly brought you to to writing this book? And and maybe at what point did you realize, oh, this 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 has the makings of a of a full book project? You know, it's interesting. You know, he appears in so many civil rights accounts, whether any account of the Nation of Islam, any account of the Olympic boycott in '68. He usually appears in books about the March on Washington, not because he was an organizer, but because he was a critic. And he's just always kind of there. And it turns out that he is from the city where I teach. And I had no idea. Uh, He turns out to be the most important figure from the town where my college is. Uh, And I figured that uh, because of my location, I had a responsibility to see what I could find out. You are able to to look at some of Lomax's archival papers here. And it, it seems a bit of an interesting story. They end up in um, Nevada, in Reno. How did that happen? It doesn't seem like Lomax has any kind of particular relationship to 
to Reno and um, what did those papers tell you uh, about about his life that that maybe is is new or previously unknown? Right, uh, absolutely. I started this project assuming that since I lived in Valdosta, Georgia, that that would be a good place to start since that's where he's from. But it turns out that you know he leaves when he's eighteen. He only comes back once or twice in his life, um, and so all of my research ended up having to be really all over the country. Most of that was done at the University of Nevada. And even the archivists at the University of Nevada are not exactly sure why his papers ended up with him. He was, uh, among other things, a serial marrier. Uh, He was married several times in his life, had a lot of domestic issues. And his, his last wife, uh, Robinette was a secretary who he had cheated on his former wife with, and he ends up marrying her, a white woman from California, who also didn't really have any relationship uh, that we know about with Reno, Nevada. And yet she was left after his mysterious death with all of his papers. And for some reason, she showed up at the University of Nevada one day and gave them all of his stuff. And when I started this project, that collection had just been sitting in their archives for a long time and had never even been cataloged, uh, much less utilized uh, by researchers. And so uh, working with the archives at Nevada, not only was I able to look at all the papers, but I was able to help kind of organize them and to make sure that uh, they are now uh, available for other people to use. And they are a trove of information. The reason why uh, Louis Lomax always a kind of appeared in the background of these studies, it turns out, isn't because he wasn't important. It's because he was largely unknowable. He changed positions so much in his life. He changed jobs so much in his life that he, he remained mysterious. We just didn't have access to his inner workings. His papers really provide a lot of that knowledge, and they are the, they are the prime source for, for this book. So let's take you back to, to the beginning and um, talk briefly about Lomax's background and, and his early life. So you mentioned he was, he was born in, in Georgia. Can you flesh out um, some of his, his early years and, and maybe things that potentially are important looking forward? He, he does leave um, when he's a teenager, goes off to college and never really comes back. But throughout his entire life, he always talks about his formative years in rural South Georgia as kind of being a defining element of his life. And you can imagine why. I mean, it is he is born in the uh, heart of the Jim Crow era in a place that is notorious for its racism. That legacy certainly cast a shadow over most of his childhood. His, his mother died right after he was born, and his father was never really around. But he was raised by an uncle and a grandfather, his, his uncle, who was actually kind of his surrogate father, was the kind of the founder of black education in this part of Georgia, um, has a school named after him here now, has a street named after him. He's, he was a very important figure. And so he grows up in what I guess we could call the upper crust of black Valdosta. But at the same time, there is a ceiling because of segregation. And so he learns how to deal uh, with white people and how to kind of negotiate racism as a lived experience. At the same time, though, he also inherits from this experience 
I guess I'll say a sense of entitlement. I don't want that to sound bad, but this kind of sense of privilege, maybe that that he can um, game the system if he needs to, um, and that he has a he has sense of superiority over his peers because of that upbringing that that also never really leaves him and uh, leads him in certain directions that certainly his uncle and his grandfather would never have wanted him to go. Yeah, so um, one of those directions, which I guess is something that is a, a theme from early on in your book, is Lomax's tendency to, to embellish, uh, to lie, to create aspects of, of his background, whether that's aspirational or whether it's just strategic in terms of, of trying to get ahead. And, and from early on, we, we see that. So can you say a little bit about how that works in relation to First of all, the way that he talks about his formal education, and then also you talk about some of these con schemes that he tries to run, and, and one of them actually ends up with with him in prison. Right. Uh, you know, he is very much a fantasist in in much of of his life, and there are a couple of different ways to potentially describe that. One of them is just you know general signifying to go along to get along, and he learns in Valdosta that that the way. Uh, that the black population can get ahead is by scheming against white people. Uh, but that's not enough to, <laughs> I think, to explain the extent of the way he uses cons. He, when he leaves Valdosta, he goes to uh, Payne College in Augusta, one of the premier black institutions in Georgia not housed in Atlanta, and always claims that he gets a degree there, though he does not. I was able uh, through Payne College to get his records from the school, including letters written by his uncle to the school trying to get him back in. He, from there, goes to Washington, D.C. While he was at Payne, he had um, worked at the student radio station and had become enamored with radio journalism. And he goes to Washington, D.C., where he really starts what's going to end up becoming his career. While he's there, he also starts working on a newspaper. He starts preaching as a lay preacher with uh, using kind of training on his grandfather's name. And in typical Lomax fashion, what was a, a brief college career at Payne turns into a degree. And what starts as a couple of classes at um, American uh, ends up turning out as a master's degree from American, which he also doesn't actually get. He also claims later that he also studied at Yale. Um, he starts to rely on that as uh, someone without a college education, without family in Washington. He just kind of plays on his wits to get by. When he does go to Chicago, he starts working uh, for newspapers there, um, gets into trouble for uh, having this relation. He, he is married at one point. He leaves his first wife, um, a black woman, and goes and and gets a, a common law wife in Chicago, a white woman, uh, which causes him some trouble. A woman who is not technically his wife, but who he lives with and has a certain expectation of living standard that he can't provide. And so he trades back on those wits. He creates the scheme where he goes over to Indiana and rents cars from white car dealerships, comes back to Chicago and sells the cars as his own, a scheme which inevitably is doomed to failure because the, the car dealerships are going to know that when their cars aren't returned that something has gone wrong. 
and it ends up getting him locked away. He ends up going to prison. It does create this kind of troubled past for Lomax that when he gets out of prison, he very much wants to escape. And just as he originally escaped that kind of rural Valdosta life by creating stories of his academic achievement, he is going to kind of shudder all of this away, uh, maintain the stories of academic achievement, and uh, never mention his years in prison. Yeah, so Lomax comes out of prison in, uh, I guess, the mid-50s, and he's able to quite successfully restart his his career. So he, he moves back to DC and he starts working for the Associated Negro Press, and then he comes into the the orbit of the nation of Islam. Um, so how does that happen? How does Lomax begin to develop his relation with the nation of Islam? And then how does that feed into this, this landmark television series, the, the Hate That Hate produced, which, which airs in 1959? The nation of Islam had been around for a while. It had been founded in 1930. Uh, but it is in 1954 when... Malcolm X moves to Harlem and takes over Mosque Number 7 when the Nation of Islam starts to kind of get on more radars than it had before. Lomax had been spending time in Harlem, and he very much saw the Nation of Islam as the one story that everybody kind of wanted to get. He understood that the Nation of Islam, for a lot of people, black, white, and otherwise, were a scary organization um, because the black experience uh, in the United States was so rooted in uh, Protestant evangelical Christianity. Um, there was this element of distance between them and the black Muslims. And he had, while in New York, made the acquaintance of Mike Wallace, the, the famous white journalist who will go on to 60 Minutes fame and everything else was not friends with him, uh, was just simply, again, hustling to try to make connections, just to try to make it. I mean, he really was a hustler in so many respects. And he sells him on the idea that I can get you the black Muslims. And Wallace is very much willing uh, because he knows that that is a story that will draw eyes to his television news program. At the time, was called Newsbeat. And Lobax just goes down to Moss Number 7 and hustling like he always does, starts making friends. He talks to Malcolm X, and eventually, after he befriends Malcolm X and gets close to Malcolm X, they take a trip out to Detroit to speak to Elijah Muhammad, and he warns them um, that this is going to be for a white news program. It might not be portrayed exactly in the way you want, but that ultimately all publicity is good publicity. So they agree. And Lomax goes back to Wallace and kind of brokers this deal and says, I got them on the hook. Um, I can get you interviews with Malcolm X, with Elijah Muhammad, and with other leaders in the group. Wallace loves the idea. And so he goes out and does the work. He is the interviewer for that program. He is credited as a producer for the program. I mean, he allows them to speak for themselves. He is a, doing a relatively open interview. but it is going to take shape when it is produced as a largely critical program. Wallace is going to provide the, 
the context. He is going to provide the commentary on the statements. And we'll title it with, of course, a, a, a kind of a scare headline, The Hate That Hate Produced. That introduction to the country is going to be so important because whether it's fear or not, their presence, their message becomes relevant after 1959 in a way that it had never been before. And so the the group has kind of a, a dual reaction to the program. They are publicly outraged at Mike Wallace and and see him publicly at least as this this guy who sold them out and everything else. He is banned from all their events. Of course, in reality, Lomax had warned them that that was going to be the case. They knew that this was going to be the kind of program that it was, and they were actually very grateful for the publicity. And so Lomax, um, even though his name is on a program that ostensibly reviled them, uh, he remained very close to the organization. Lomax is is going to have a hand in a lot uh, of the Nation of Islam's national exposure in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And it's less because he is devoted to their cause. He certainly is not. He is an opportunist who, who is taking advantage, but he is also really good friends with Malcolm X. He really does want his newspaper to be successful. He did, really does help him to lay the galleys down for Muhammad Speaks. And so um, he is going to be important to them and they are in turn going to be important for him. It is a transactional relationship, but one that in a life that features a lot of insincerity is going to be sincere, uh, that he will, he will stay close to Malcolm for the rest of, of Malcolm's life. Yeah, so you, you describe Lomax's involvement in, in the hate that hate produced as a, a triumph in self-promotion and it starts to open up these these new avenues for him, um, whether it's writing or whether it's kind of participating in, in certain public events. Um, one of the one of the next big pieces of, of work that that you flag up that, that Lomax does is um, is this piece for for Harper's on the Negro Revolt. So can you can you say a little bit more about that and then how that leads into some of um, Lomax's early book length work? Right. Um, that's one of the one of the best things that uh, for those uh, listening who are scholars of the civil rights movement, one of the one of the best kind of resources that the Reno papers have are all of his correspondence with the Harper um, publication group, whether it be the magazine or for books. And just as any hustler would and any of the the space rate writers uh, would, he is constantly pitching ideas for stories to the major magazines to try to make a bigger score. And so he's constantly writing them with ideas. And he knows that after the hate that hate produced, he is at least in some circles aligned, at least in certain minds with the nation of Islam and he tries to play on that by pitching this article on what he calls the Negro Revolt, an extension of some of the things he had been kind of toying with during the hate that hate produced, this notion that there is an old guard of the civil rights movement uh, led most prominently by the NAACP and the Urban League that 
had started the process of what we would might call the long civil rights movement and started these cases that all of which had been focused on integrationist policy and that there was this new generation of activists uh, that really rose in the 19th, started to rise in the 1950s and were really coming in, into their own in the early 1960s that were challenging a lot of those assumptions from the old guard, both, both ideologically and pragmatically. So part of that critique was maybe integration isn't the best idea. One of the messages uh, that groups like the Nation of Islam are propounding. But also, kind of pragmatically, these groups are taking our money uh, for membership and maybe those resources could be better allocated somewhere else now that we have this kind of civil rights establishment of these old guard groups do we trust them uh, as kind of the ideology makers and the ideology spenders that we that we should he kind of describes this effort to to push back against old guard civil rights groups and really casts his lot with the new guard, uh, not necessarily with the Nation of Islam, but, but with groups like them who are coming up and kind of saying, wait a second, the old way has been going on for so many years, maybe we need to try something new. That article is going to cause a lot of consternation. Many people love it. Many people particularly in the NAACP, hate it. Uh, the Urban League doesn't really care one way or the other. They've got their agenda and they just kind of trudge along, but it's going to create some real rivalries with the NAACP. But it's going to cause a lot of eyeballs to look at it. And that's what Lomax cared about most. He cared about those eyeballs. And Harper's was really grateful for it as well. I mean, they end up seeing some value in this kind of analysis partly because it provides a black perspective that wasn't really included in the mainstream white liberal veneration of old school civil rights. So it provided a, a new way of looking at civil rights that fit into the kind of white liberal publishing world that they liked. And it got them a lot of new readers. And so when he comes back to Harper's and says, look, I've got more to say, they are incredibly open uh, to that. One of the reasons he does that is because he wants to kind of further this analysis. But most of the reason he wants to do it is because he needs money. So not only does he kind of pitch them this book, but he also says, by the way, I need an advance. I need money to go do this research. I need to go. I need to do all this other stuff. It's no coincidence from that point on that even in our most generic historical overviews of the civil rights movement, that it's from 61 or from the early 1960s that even generic historical overviews stop uh, with the monolithic paintbrushing of the civil rights movement as an integrationist, nonviolent kind of thing. And we really start to see more nuance um, in a lot of analyses. Uh, a lot of that is attributable uh, to the Negro revolt. It's kind of fascinating to me, and, and this is something obviously that you talk a lot more about in the book, but Lomax throughout this period is is really working off the seat of his pants. Like he doesn't have a lot of knowledge about a lot of the things that he writes about. Um, he's quite open in courting controversy. You know, I think you have this quote that 
in Lomax's mind, controversy is just another word for publicity. But by accounts in terms of the number of books he, he sells and, and the interest, you know, he, he is successful. So do you apportion credit or, or blame, I guess, depending on, on how you view that to, to his audience, to to places like Harper's who are willing to give him these contracts? Um, is this just a kind of a product of Lomax himself, his ability to sell his ideas, even ones that aren't particularly well-formed? He is trying to find spaces. He is trying to find different audiences that he can speak to. He is willing to kind of go after any and all targets because he knows that his audience changes uh, depending on where he is selling a given story. He does change positions. And even though he spends a lot of his time criticizing the NAACP, there are plenty of instances where he works with the NAACP uh, when it suits. Um, and so um, he changes uh, course throughout his life in, in several instances. He starts off with kind of generic integration of civil rights coming out of Valdosta and through his college years and his early newspaper writing. Uh, then he moves to the radical left uh, while under the influence of Malcolm. Part of that is you write what sells, you speak to what sells, and you'd be willing to change your position uh, based on, on financial necessity. So Lomax has this quite considerable success as, as an author and, and as a journalist. And then as we get into the, the middle and then the second half of the 60s, he, he starts to diversify and, and move into other fields. So one of the um, probably the the biggest accomplishments, I guess, of, of his career is that he is given his own weekly television show, um, you know, effectively a, a syndicated talk show. He gets a radio show in New York that ends up getting syndicated across the country, the first black journalist to have a nationally syndicated radio show. And he uses that as a platform to talk about the things that he's writing about, to stoke controversy. The success of his radio show is going to enable him to pitch a television program out in California, starting as a space rate newspaper reporter and uh, moving into television or starting as uh, a magazine journalist and starting to write books. You're always looking for that next step. And if you have, have gotten a lot of publicity, not only for your, your hot takes on such a station, but also uh, with kind of being the first at something, you want that again. You want to move to the next step, and the next step is television. And because of his popularity, because of his infamy in many circles, he seems like the perfect candidate. And so he is able to sell a television program in Los Angeles wherein he takes that, that kind of talk show model and brings it to television where... He interviews civil rights figures. He he brings Ku Klux Klansmen onto his show. He brings dog astrologers. I mean, he brings Satanists. He, I mean, it is very much an early version of what we'll later think of as like Jerry Springer, where he goes, he's just looking for controversy. And he brings these people on and understands that it's the controversy that sells the program. And so the show does very well. Again, the first nationally syndicated long-form television program uh, hosted by a black man. I mean, he really is a pioneer in both black radio and television that really 
it is his effort that changes the game for so many people. Uh, so many people today uh, who might not even know it are dependent on his work to kind of create that seedbed. At the same time, he causes a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult ask to bring Ku Klux Klansmen onto your television <laughs> program and to still maintain a serious place in the movement. And yet he's able to do it. I mean, he, for all of the controversy uh, his television show causes, uh, it keeps him in the news. And if you're in the news, then you are relevant. And if you are relevant, you have a platform that you can use for, optimistically, we might call the greater good. And he does. To be fair, he does use his program to belittle the Ku Klux Klan. That's why he brings them on, to show how stupid they are. Um, but it is going to have a consistent rights message even though his, even though the the, the methods that it um, champions change from episode to episode, and he is really really to get into some kind of like I mean, he brings in like like ghost hunters and things. I mean, he's bringing in all kinds of people to kind of get people to watch the show, and it works. I mean, it's successful. It keeps him relevant, and that relevance allows him to go around the country giving speeches, and so it does seem that despite the, the kind of the disconnected nature of all of his efforts, that there is at least in some regard a method to the madness, um, an effort to kind of create a platform for himself that takes that self-interest and pushes it back out um, for various causes that he seems to sincerely believe in. So you see Lomax, you know, Stoking controversy, but also trying to generate these these platforms for for debate, and then arguably for for pushing the movement forward. And then towards the end of his life, another potential platform for that is his uh, foray into academia. So, can you say a little bit about his his role at um, Hofstra University and how that adds another dimension to this um, very diverse, quite eclectic career? Right. It is it is a bizarre turn for him. He ends up. Uh, moving back to New York after the television show. And he's looking for new things. And he actually sells himself to Hofstra and, uh, and says, hey, listen, I am this guy who's been involved in all kinds of stuff. And they are eager to have him on board. Hofstra's records of his time there are very limited because it's only a, a year he spends there before he dies. But Apparently, they do not check his transcripts at other universities. They assume the, that he has a couple of master's degrees um, that he actually doesn't have. I mean, that's not necessarily required. I mean, we see Harold Cruz and others get university appointments without high-level degrees. But he is a famous individual. He takes that position um, in 1969. The year before that, he had sat on stage as as Harry Edwards had announced the uh, 1968 Olympic boycott, he was still incredibly relevant. He had always managed to keep himself in the public eye. And predominantly white universities in the North at that time are interested in bolstering their limousine liberal white bona fides by bringing in black scholars to the university. It is in the late 1960s when many universities are creating black studies departments for the first time. And Hofstra's nod to that is bringing Lomax to the school. That is their initial effort to kind of create those kinds of courses for their students. 
he really does take to it. I mean, he he does get himself involved in the life of the school. He seems to like being a teacher, uh, as you might imagine, for, from someone who is constantly doing things that bring him the adulation of those watching. The professoriate is a great place for that, uh, where you have students who are eager to kind of uh, learn from a quasi-celebrity about his life experience and about the movement. It's a perfect place for him in many regards. At the same time, though, he, he is going to side with the students in faculty disputes. This is also a time of campus unrest, um, and he is going to be very much part of that. At the same time, because he's at a university, he decides that he shouldn't just be doing the kind of public activism and quasi-journalism that he's doing, but he should also do research. And it turns out that he's good at that, too. He ends up discovering the uh, birthplace of Jupiter Hammond, finds out that he is uh, born in New York, making him the earliest uh, American uh, black man uh, to publish. And so actually does do some reasonably legitimate scholarship while he's there. And Hofstra is really have glad to have him. Um, he seems to be a vital part of the university. He takes it very seriously. While he is there, he also plays around with writing more fiction. But ultimately, uh, a lot of his time there, with the exception of what I've just mentioned, will be devoted to fostering a, a variety of conspiracy theories. At this point in 1969, uh, both Malcolm and Martin Luther King had been killed. He considered himself very close to both. He was friends with both of them and really took those deaths hard. And with the free time allotted to him with a light university schedule, he begins really thinking a lot about their lives in particular and their deaths and really starts kind of falling down a rabbit hole of whether or not the government was behind those assassinations and becomes kind of obsessed with things like that. So Lomax is, is caught in controversy and dabbling in conspiratorial ideas right up until his death. So it's maybe fitting then that his own death has an, an element of the conspiratorial about it. How exactly does, does Lomax die and um, what are some of the after effects of that? It is very peculiar. I mean, uh, uh, the result of a lot of his conspiracy work ends up becoming a book that he publishes called To Kill a Black Man, which also does very well. And because of his willingness to kind of critique the government as being part of these assassinations, he ends up finding himself in some, some very interesting circles. He goes out west to meet with white left-wing critics of the federal government. He meets with Daniel Ellsberg, the guy who sneaks the Pentagon Papers out uh, of the government. Um, they are hatching a variety of plans to expose uh, various COINTELPRO and other kind of government programs to the public. And he drives out there. He is going to drive back and he rents a car uh, and he drives and he's driving back from California to New York. He's going through New Mexico, wherein the car he rents locks up, veers off the road, and he dies in a one car traffic accident in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico. And it obviously is going to look suspicious because for all of Lomax's problems, 
uh, especially with cars early on, which is what got him in jail. He never has traffic accidents. He never has a traffic record of any kind. And yet here he dies on this lonely road in New Mexico all by himself in a one-car accident. And uh, it is very possible that he has a wreck and dies. Lots of people do. But it is going to lead, especially in the wake of To Kill a Black Man, um, his last book that kind of traded in a lot of these theoretical uh, machinations by the government to get rid of loud, provocative black leaders, that the government had somehow played a role in eliminating another loud, provocative black leader. Um, there isn't any evidence specifically for that. His wife at the time uh, was Robinette Lomax, uh, uh, who we mentioned earlier, and she very much believed that there was some kind of conspiracy to his death. I mean, she she brought in psychics. She did all kinds of things to try to figure out what really happened there. It does linger over Lomax's life, and it has never been explained to the level that some people would like to see it explained, either because there is some grand dark conspiracy or more likely because when you're in a single car accident in an age before cellular phone and tracking data and everything else, that it's just, you know what you know about the car going off the road. Um, And so it does leave his death, I think fittingly open-ended. And it was the kind of death while it's never good that people die, uh, it is the kind of death that I think fits Lomax's life. So Lomax dies in 1970, just about into his his late 40s. He's packed an enormous amount of stuff into his his very colourful and often quite controversial career. Listeners certainly encourage you to go and and have a look at the book in full because there's so much stuff that we we haven't been able to cover and, and talk about today. I mean, you know, there's... He's, he, he had, there's a whole foreign correspondent aspect to his career um, that we haven't discussed, for example. But uh, thinking in terms of Lomax's his legacy and continuing impact, um, are there some key themes or key ideas that you think come out of this research for you? Absolutely. I mean, every carnival needs a barker or else people won't see all the magic stuff that happens inside. And Lomax... His role in the movement in particular is to popularize it, is to draw eyeballs to it. He is there for all of it. When we think about Malcolm X, we think about probably his greatest speech as being the ballot or the bullet speech. His opening act that drew people into that speech was Louis Lomax. He, he gave a specifically integrationist speech just so that Malcolm would have a foil to play off of. He introduces them to the nation He goes to the March on Washington, even though he doesn't agree with it, and he writes steadily about it. He does prop up the Christmas boycott and the Olympic boycott. He does make African colonial independence movements a a thing that white people in the United States know about. And so his role, I think, his, his vital role is to popularize the civil rights movement, to draw eyeballs to it in a variety of ways that might not otherwise have been drawn. And movements need that. They need hustlers like Lomax to be there at all the big events, to push all of these things forward. 
we are affected by political change all the time, but there are a lot of us who don't follow politics. For those people who don't really pay attention, it requires that kind of effort. And Lomax does that. A lot of the political ferment and the racial ferment of uh, the 1960s would not have gone the way it did without him. He is not a chief organizer of a lot of the big things that we know as um, kind of foundational civil rights events, but he's there for all of it. And he is the guy who popularizes these stories. Thanks again, Thomas. It's been really great to talk to you today. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much.